We talk so much about health equity and the inequities, I guess, and the fact that we can't get surgeons into these rural communities. But what ends up happening is surgeons want to live where they want to live. So you've got this oversupply in certain pockets of the country where lots of people want to live, but there's only so much supply of patients to basically be filled. So what we do is we go to those surgeons that are maybe 50, 60, 70% occupied with their current practice at home. And then we say, come work with us. We'll take you and we'll move you efficiently from wherever your home base is into a rural community on a recurring basis, and we're going to basically build an elective style surgical program in that community. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the CEO and co-founder of In On Health. In today's episode, we speak with Chris Pusey, the Chief Operating Officer of Rural Partners in Medicine. Rural Partners in Medicine has developed a sustainable model for bringing specialty care to some of the most rural populations in the U.S. In this episode, we discuss not only the challenges of rural healthcare in the U.S. today, but how that relates to our conversation regarding health equity. We also cover some of the opportunities to use specialty care as a model to help hospitals be more sustainable in rural areas as community anchor institutions. I hope you enjoy this episode and that you learn more not just about rural health in our country, but also how to think about equity and the sustainability of rural hospitals. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. Today, we have Chris Pusey, the Chief Operating Officer of Rural Partners in Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to do this um, and uh, just enjoy your company. So I, I, I think this will be great. Likewise. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So to start, um, before we get into the work you do with Rural Partners in Medicine, would love to just learn a bit more about your personal background. Where did you grow up? What's influenced you in terms of your career choices and ultimately how you ended up working in healthcare? Yeah, um, this won't mean much to, to anybody outside of Colorado, but uh, I'm a what they call a native in Colorado, which okay. um, interestingly enough, I had somebody come across, you know, it's such a transient city now in town in Denver that I had somebody come across and call me a unicorn the other day. Oh, really? Which, um, you know, is totally ridiculous, but I love the fact that, uh, my four and a half year, four and a half year old daughter just, you know, gets a kick out of that. Dad, you're a unicorn. That's hilarious. And why did they call you that? Because it's so unique to ha- to see anybody from Colorado that I actually grew up here and still lives here. And so. still lives here yeah. today. Yeah. Well, it's a great place. So there's a reason lots of people are coming here and why people have stayed. Yeah. <laughs> so background grew up here. Um, you know, I, uh, I got into competitive skiing actually. Um, okay. At about ten or eleven, uh, I was a mogul skier. We actually um, relocated to, up to Vail um, okay. when I was in high school. So I spent my high school time up there, and I split my time between the public high school in the spring and fall, and then went to a ski acad- a special ski academy. You know, my career was one thing in skiing, but um, the the biggest thing was. Uh, was really probably that I ended up in school with uh, Lindsey Vaughn. So, you know, oh, okay. that's, a, that's you pretty cool. Cool by association, Very I guess. Very cool. <laughs> nice. And so you grow up skiing and, and obviously as a student athlete, that's a very busy life. I was also a student athlete, but I did track and field. 
exact opposite climate. Um, <laughs> hot and dry. Um, yeah. There is no moguls for me. Right. But, uh, but, but that is a certain type of lifestyle. And so what, as you went into college and started to think about like what was next for you, like what were, what were you thinking about in terms of your career and, yeah. and how did we, you know, how did you eventually end up in healthcare? Yeah. Ultimately, I wanted to keep the competitive skiing. So I ended up at the University of Colorado. So I ended okay. up right in my backyard. Right back, yeah, uh, right back home. Um, but really enjoyed my time there. And uh, so when I was going to school, similar to your question about just the demands on your time when you're a student athlete, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I took about two years off of college to keep chasing the, the US ski team. Okay. Got pretty close a couple of years. Um, and then I went back to school and kind of went full, full, full throttle. Yeah, yeah. I went year round. Um, and, you know, my, my dad's guidance a lot, you know, going into college was like, get an accounting degree or get an engineering degree okay. because you'll always have a job. Right. Um, and so, you know, and he, my dad is a, uh, is a venture capitalist, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, in background and so, and had a fairly successful career. So I, I, I kind of gravitated to that kind of finance angle a little bit. Okay. And so I, uh, when I got to school, uh, I actually started in engineering and in computer science, thought I wanted to go that route, got about right. a year into it and, and decided that, you know, that more of my passion probably laid on the business side of things. Okay. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into things. As I looked to graduate college, I had done some internships and actually had set up an internship with um, an accounting firm, a local one. And okay. I think this was like a couple of years before I actually graduated. And so I had a job offer already ready to go That's when I great. got out of college. And then I did a second internship with a private equity firm actually in Denver. Okay. And they were a generalist firm and a big cross section of their investments were in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so I got involved with them. Um, and they had just made an investment in the private ec- or in the um, physical therapy space. Okay. And I got to working with with that company. It was three therapists that had founded the company, had done really well. They were great clinicians, great recruiters, and so their business was kind of exploding. They'd gone from one to fifteen locations on their own, but they weren't business people. They weren't classically trained in how okay. to kind of grow and right. scale an organization. So with the help of the private equity firm, they hired a CFO. Um, and I was working with that CFO and that CFO said, Hey, why don't you come out and help me? You've got kind of a diverse set of skills, um, not just angled in accounting, but kind of the understanding of operations, um, working at the private equity firm. So I, that was kind of how I launched into healthcare. Right. So very early in your career, you are already sitting at this intersection of, of healthcare and the operational side of it and the finance side of it. Right. Yeah. So I spent, um, a couple of years out there and when I, got there. They were about 15 clinics when I got back. Um, and I came back to Denver from Chicago and I actually moved back into the private equity firm that owned, owned the physical therapy business out in Chicago. So I kind of okay. made a reverse transition back into the finance world. But in that finance side, I got, because of my experience with the physical therapy business, I got kind of offered the opportunity to really work with just the healthcare team. Okay. And so I spent about eight years in the private equity space investing in healthcare services businesses. Very interesting. So so that's going to relate to things we're going to talk about later. But I think in healthcare, oftentimes we talk about the challenges of access or equity or other things. But sometimes what might be missing in that conversation is the how, right? Even, even if we have a principle of serving a hard to reach population or an underserved population, 
how do we actually do that sustainably? So it sounds like from early in your career, you were kind of deep inside of the fundamentals of how healthcare organizations run and, and namely the finance side of it. Um, that's, that's very cool. And it's also um, just interesting when we think about our journeys, right? Like, uh, so now when you look at rural partners in medicine, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about what they do and, and how you end up in the role of being the COO there. Yeah. So, you know, after I got done with the private equity firm, I really had this disconnect in my mind about being an investor versus being an operator and, a, and somebody that was closer to the execution and the building of companies and right. really people and teams mm-hmm. to execute on some strategy or vision. And so I left to basically get into the operational side. So I, I ran a small company in Denver for a couple of years, and then I went to the startup route. Mm-hmm. I went into a, a really fun niche business, not healthcare, but kind of fitness and health that okay. way. Right. Um, and so we built some unique gems around that, around the kind of American Ninja Warrior concept, um, okay, cool. so, which was really a neat, fun business. And then my kind of connections in private equity were what brought me kind of to rural partners in medicine. Okay. Um, a former partner that I had worked with had purchased rural partners in medicine okay. and um, had partnered with Dr. Brian Shear to kind of take the business from um, its current state to kind of a, a, a more regional. And who is Dr. Brian Shear? Dr. Brian Shear is the founder and, and current CEO of, okay. of rural partners in medicine. Great. And so that's how I got got in it. I really wasn't looking for a job or, or necessarily a change. And I got to meet Dr. Shear, and and I think I connected very, very quickly with both the mission of what RPM does and with the passion that Dr. Shear has for the business. Both of things were were just a kind of a lightning in a bottle strike for me, and I just was ready to ready to jump in. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. So it sounds like before rural partners in medicine, you're someone that had experience in private equity healthcare operations, and then some other entrepreneurial ventures, but not really maybe a lot of experience in rural healthcare in America. So tell me, what were your observations? And first, obviously, what does RPM do or Rural Partnership Medicine do? And then what were some of your observations about rural healthcare in in America and some of the opportunities and challenges like serving those populations? Sure. So Rural Partners in Medicine... um, in its original construct is mm-hmm. um, basically a platform that comes in and helps partner with rural hospitals to build um, specialty surgery programs. Okay. And so we consult and then help design surgical programs. Dr. Shear is an orthopedic surgeon by background. So okay. a big chunk of our business even today is still in orthopedics, but we've kind of expanded that offering to almost all subspecialty surgery in the hospital. So you know, we do a, a broad range of orthopedics. We do spine surgery, pain management, ENT, urology, general surgery. Um, we do some emergency medicine. So that was the original business of RPM. I see. And just to ask a question. So clearly, if we look at rural America, you may have critical access hospitals out in these contexts. But it sounds like the problem here is access to quality surgical care for those populations is close to non-existent. It sounds like maybe that's a gap that rural partners in medicine is trying to fill. Yeah, I think I think Dr. Shear rightly identified that it was a big gap. And as specifically the critical access environment has changed over time. I mean, a lot of what critical access hospitals were designed to do originally right. were to be basically emergency rooms 
mm-hmm. out in rural out spaces. Out in rural spaces, yep. Then they kind of they kind of evolved a little bit and got some primary care going and some other kind of, you know, more primary sets of services going. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, they struggled to evolve from that. And what happened was a lot of the reimbursement models changed over time and there was less reimbursement for ER, less reimbursement for primary care and, and more reimbursement and more resources associated with specialty medicine. Right. And the big gap is that there's a need, of course, in every rural community for this, for specialty medicine. Mm-hmm. The problem is there's not enough for full-time surgeons. Right. So the problem becomes like, how do we figure that out? And so a couple of models have developed over time in, in how to do that. And both of which I think are fine, but they're, they're flawed in ways. So there's what's traditionally called an outreach model where specialty surgeons or specialty docs will come out. They'll provide a free clinic to Mm -hmm. the hospital and to the patients, you know, the patients will come in and get a consult, but then any real workup or, you know, or surgery or anything that needs to be done post that period typically goes back with that surgeon to wherever their home base is. A lot of times they own ambulatory surgery centers. And so they have an economic interest or they're employed somewhere or they're in private practice somewhere. And so there's an economic gain to be had by moving the patients out of the community, Mm. which leaves the hospital really with no added benefit, uh, not financial benefit. You know, obviously I think there's still this kind of perception that I'm getting care to my patients, right? but you're not creating this kind of new revenue streams and opportunities for the hospitals for sustainable growth. For sustainability, right. Yeah. So that's one model. The other model is an employed full-time doc. Mm -hmm. Um, That typically is really difficult to recruit for rural hospitals. And if they can do it, they typically have to pay a market rate or higher the market rate to get them to come into a rural community. And when you don't have the work for them to do on a full-time basis, you're, you know, you're basically, it's not a good financial decision on that front. And also I assume the infrastructure needed in these rural hospitals to implement surgery is another part of it. So if you spend significant amount of CapEx on infrastructure for surgery, but you don't have the volume that also creates some challenges, right? And because these rural hospitals are already resource constrained. So it's like, where yeah. do they invest their resources to serve the community? It's actually an interesting thing because most of these hospitals were actually built with operating rooms. Okay. They're so the ORs are underutilized. There. Okay. And, and, or they're not being utilized at all. Um, mm. And so some of that capital has already been provided, but you know, we still definitely have capital and, just general resource constraints in the rural healthcare market. But as far as the big, big outlays for the programs, um, a lot of that capital's kind of already been committed. Now it's more about utilization of that resource that they have. Mm -hmm. So how does this model work? So how do you get specialty surgery out to these hospitals? And what does that look like in terms of how you partner with them? Yeah, so when we come in, we build programs basically to the demand of the community. Mm-hmm. And we do that on a, what we call a permanent, but very part-time basis. Okay. So if let's say, for example, we're starting an orthopedic surgery department, um, in a new rural hospital that we haven't worked with, we'll likely start with one day every other week. It might be, okay. it might be Tuesday. So that same Tuesday, every other week. So the community gets access to understanding that this is going to happen on this day and on a recurring basis because consistency's 
super important when you're building surgical. And so what's programs. happening? Is someone flying out or how's this work? Yeah. So the, the surgeons that, um, part of how we facilitate the model and why this, it works from the surgeon's standpoint is that we go recruit surgeons that are actually in private practice. Typically some are employed, okay. but they, they have a certain amount of commitment at home mm. and they're usually in areas, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate, unfortunate because we talk so much about, you know, health equity and the inequities, I guess. And, and, and the fact that, you know, we can't get surgeons into these rural communities, but what ends up happening is surgeons want to live where they want to live. So I'll take a ski resort town here in Colorado, like Steamboat mm-hmm. Springs, Colorado. We have a number of physicians that come out of there. When Dr. Shearer started RPM, I think there were 10 board certified orthopedic surgeons up there of about a town that's about 10,000 people. So maybe you need one full-time equivalent surgeon in the market. So you've got this oversupply in certain pockets of the country. Um, You know, big urban centers often are the same thing, like like a Denver, you know, or a um, Colorado Springs or a Fort Collins where lots of people want to live, Mm -hmm. but there's only so much supply of patients to basically be filled. So what we do is we go to those surgeons that are maybe 50, 60, 70% occupied with um, their current practice at home. And then we say, come work with us. We'll take you and we'll move you efficiently from wherever your home base is into a rural community on a recurring basis. And we're going to basically build an elective style surgical program in that community. That's amazing. So you're increasing the access for the surgeon it's a need for them. It's almost like a two-sided marketplace. So they have a little more opportunity to, to have impact and to do surgery, but you're bridging that gap. And then I assume through reimbursement, it helps support this model or how is it paid for? Cause you know, because I think that's what's so fascinating about this is, and as I understand you're doing this across the country, which you can maybe share with us, but it sounds like there's an economic model here that actually makes this work and be sustainable while getting that access. Yeah. So the way that we contract with hospitals is, is on a production style basis. And so we really think that's the right model for rural. And the reason for that is it basically variableizes the entire comp model for the hospital. If the surgeons aren't busy, then the surgeon doesn't get paid. RPM doesn't get paid. So there's this, there's this huge economic alignment and what, what, what we're trying to do. The way that our contracts are set up is that the, the hospitals actually bill and collect for both the professional and technical sides of the fees. Okay. But uh, they remit to us based on production. Interesting. So what's the footprint of rural partners in medicine? Like, where are you working today? Like, what's the scope of the amount of surgeries you guys are doing? Yeah. And how are you growing? Yeah. So we are in about seven or eight states with just the RPM brand. We've got a, a couple of other brands we've picked up over time to help rural hospitals and other areas of the hospital. But um, Rural Partners of Medicine is about, in about 50 hospitals, uh, seven states. And I Which would, states, if you could share yeah, like yeah. the types of states yeah, you're yeah, in? Yeah. yeah. Our most recent kind of add-on state was Arizona. We do some business in Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, Kansas, South Dakota, Iowa, Missouri. So we're kind of in that general part of the country, that kind of Midwest part of the country. You know, we're growing fairly quickly. You know, we we, we typically bring on between 10 and 20 partners a year at, at this point in time. We also add a lot of different surgeries to existing clients. So we might start with orthopedics and then we start to build, you know, a more comprehensive surgical um, department for the hospital by bringing in urology or ENT or whatever that community most needs. And so 
that, that's, that's kind of how we typically grow as we start with a program. And, you know, you brought up something in a question you had a minute ago about, you know, leveraging, you know, we try to leverage as much of the existing infrastructure in our program. So we, we don't bring a lot of staff with us and we utilize a lot of the staff that's already existent in the hospital. And as the programs grow, it creates opportunities to hire more staff locally and that kind of right. stuff. But, um, we really try to leverage as much as of we can, as we can of the existing infrastructure. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So it's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about health equity in this model because, you know, clearly some of the health equity issues that we're dealing with in the U.S. are they concern rural America. Issues of a lot of rural hospitals being under duress economically, um, a lot of dynamics around consolidation. Though for, for these rural areas, these hospitals aren't just hospitals. They're actually community anchor institutions. So, you know, if, if a hospital is having a hard time and a big system is wanting to come in to consolidate, that could be very challenging for a community in terms of the role of that hospital as a community institution. Um, and also in rural, I think a lot of people might be thinking about, well, what about primary care? What about the more fundamental things? And as I hear you, you know, it's interesting because also I have a background in global health. So these models of flying in docs to do specialty care, you see in emerging markets as well. Yep. But what's fascinating to me is that, you know, for those that know a bit about the economics of hospitals, oftentimes it's specialty care that cross-subsidizes the other operations. So it sounds like to me, if we think about the survival of these rural hospitals, that your model of facilitating specialty care actually creates an economic engine that can cross-subsidize some of the, the other more basic services that are needed. So I think there's something really interesting here I'd love for you to, to unpack. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're, you got the concept really well and, and the fact that we're true believers that this happens and we've seen it. And so some of our, you know, our oldest clients are 10-year-old clients. Um, many of them have built brand new hospitals. Um, not all from what RPM does or what RPM brings to the table, but to your point, the credibility of what used to be an ER with some primary care as into like a full blown health center. Right. And so as you, as you gain this economic resource that's generated from specialty care, it gets quickly reinvested in the hospital's capabilities. And what's unique about independent rural health, health, rural hospitals and the administrators that run them is that their passion for their community is so high that that's where that money and that resource goes. It goes right back into it to create jobs. Uh, you know, these critical access hospitals are typically the one, two or three largest employer in town. They're good jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more health equity isn't just kind of the disparity of service, but it's also like, what does that institution mean for a specific community? And is that institution going beyond the four walls of its hospital to have an impact. And, and I, I really think that, you know, we can help partner in that way to bring these services. And, and that's why I think Dr. Shear and I get so passionate about helping all these hospitals and the more hospitals we can help, the better, because I really think we can help with sustainability and bring these, these new services to, to communities. Right. So maybe you can give some examples of like, you know, what do you hear from people? I, I assume without an RPM or a, a, a rural hospital you work with that maybe has more limited services, what is that person doing? 
So like before RPM shows up, rural partners in medicine and with the hospital and launches a program, what's the process that someone's undergoing to get surgery, like an orthopedic surgery or something like that, like an elderly person in a rural area? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're lucky, you have somebody doing out migration or doing uh, outreach, so that they're getting seen at least for the first kind of the mock-up of what the patient needs from a service standpoint. Okay, but then they might be driving, you know, a hundred miles a way to get service, mm-hmm. um, and surgery and, you know, surgery for anybody is scary. I mean, it's a, a big unknown and a lot of these surgeries are, are fairly big and they, they put you out for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need caregivers and now you're trying to displace caregivers from, ta- from home and take them with you. And, and I think there's definitely a group of the population that's willing to do that. There's also a group of the population that is deferring significant care or avoiding care altogether. Right. So by bringing the service and keeping it local, it creates better health for the community, for people that just wouldn't otherwise get service. So, you know, again, we're just, we we just really believe in, in this opportunity to kind of help hospitals and communities. And and we see it, we see it all the time. So That's, that's really interesting. Um, Tell me about how you see some of these pressures that I was describing earlier. I mean, clearly, you know, this model can support a lot of rural hospitals. But what are some of your observations of just the rural health dynamics that you see out there today and some of these challenges? I mean, I think demographically, we know that in a lot of the rural areas, um, the demographics tend to be um, older populations. And we know in some cases... Younger people are moving away from rural areas. So like kind of the the population and demographics are shifting. I mean, naturally for things like surgery, which, you know, typically the need increases with age, like this sounds really interesting. I'm just curious about your observations being out there, flying out into these rural areas and what is, what are you seeing and what is, what is the impact of this type of work? Yeah, I think our observations are for most of the communities that we help today you know, population is flat, if not decreasing in town. Mm -hmm. Um, so it hits on a little bit of what you're, what you've implied here. And so there's just not a lot of positive change, you know, like in the cities, you've got a certain amount of inherent built in just population growth. That's going to fuel a healthcare organization when you're in a decreasing population environment or a flat population, and there's no necessary economic change going on in those communities it puts further strain on the hospitals because Mm -hmm. as you've got kind of downward pressure on what you're getting paid for service and you've got nothing else counteracting that it just creates, it creates additional tension and challenges for um, hospital sustainability. Right. And as you think about like in surgery, there's your pre-op and your post-op, right? And so clearly if you look at that continuum, there are things that need to happen across the chain to ensure quality for the procedure and then recovery. How does that look in your model? And then I'm also curious about how you see telehealth in the rural context and if some of that intersects with with some of what you guys are thinking about. Yeah, so, you know, most of the surgical services we provide, follow-up can be provided by the surgeon, you know, post-op follow-up can be provided by the surgeon in their next visit. Okay. Um, but what happens that's unique is that there's a much bigger partnership that happens with the surgeons and the local team 
in the acute care floors and that kind of stuff that, that are following patients because the surgeon's coming in and, and, and leaving, you know, we support those hospitals with, um, they always have their own kind of secondary and tertiary referral facilities. So if anything were to go wrong, they Mm. can refer out. We, spent a lot of time talking about medically appropriate surgeries within the hospitals that we're going to these hospitals. Okay. Don't what does have, that mean? Yeah. When you say I mean, medically appropriate, it, it, yeah. it typically just revolves around the fact that these hospitals don't have an ICU. Okay. And so you have to be um, cognizant of the health of the patient going in differently than you would if you had, you know, a full support of a big hospital in an urban market. Um, mm-hmm. so it, you know, it doesn't, it cuts out maybe 25% of kind of eligible surgeries that might be done in an urban market. Um, so it's not a huge function, but as it relates to orthopedics, you know, general surgery might be a little bit different. There's different acuity patients that come in through the ER. And so we still may not operate on a hundred percent of those. So we want to do what's medically appropriate. We also support by, if there are emergent issues that are generated from our surgeons, we will we'll fly them back out on an emergency basis if needed. It, okay. it, it honestly doesn't happen a lot, right? but we have, we have made that commitment to folks as well. Um, and sometimes patients, you know, just don't respond well to surgery and they have to be, they have to be helped by a, you know, a secondary facility that's within, within the area. Mm-hmm. Telehealth though, are you seeing like, um, I'm curious just how you think about telehealth, maybe even outside of RPM, but also just what the opportunities are because you're spending so much time in those contexts. Yeah. I, I do think that telehealth has a, a bright future in rural, and I do think that there's going to be new services that are offered. Many of the hospitals that we help are have tried to use telehealth in some fashion, and I've seen, unfortunately, limited success in that. And right. I might attribute some of that to just cultural. I, I'm not sure culturally that a lot of the rural communities actually want to sit in front of a computer screen and talk to a doctor that way. Right. I do think that's going to adapt and change. And as the hospital embraces more of that and it becomes more the norm, it will, it'll take off. We talk about it in relation to orthopedics and follow up and driving efficiency because, you know, to drive even more, more profitability for the hospitals on our programs, it's all about efficiency. So if we could reduce the amount of flight time and all of that to these hospitals by doing a lot of follow-up or pre-op workup, you know, that probably makes sense. We're definitely not there in our model to be able to offer that. We do talk a lot about other specialties and whether or not they should be offered in telehealth. And we've explored a number of different uh, models to potentially bring that incremental service to the hospital and keep patients local. But we're, we're kind of still in the early evolutions of, of that um, opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, as you say, a lot of it is human behavior because I think, you know, the technology is there. The apps are there. People in these contexts have phones. And frankly, the connectivity is improving. I mean, satellite and rural broadband are, are going to wire rural in a way that pretty soon it's, it's going to be pretty robust. So then really we're getting to issues of human behavior. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, interesting. Um, in terms of surgeries, what are the top, because you do a number of different surgeries, you mentioned orthopedics, what are the top three or five that you guys are doing now or where you're seeing growth? 
Yeah. You know, obviously we talked a little bit about the demographics of the populations we're helping. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, total joints is probably the number one orthopedic procedure we're doing, total knees and total hips. Okay. Um, Which come with age, basically. And, yep. Yeah. The, basically the joints just breaking down over time from use and mm-hmm. um, and just extending mobility and reducing pain is, is, you know, you know, they've been moved largely to outpatient procedures. And so they make a lot of sense to be done in rural. And I assume with technology, they're becoming increasingly less invasive. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. They're becoming uh, the, you know, now for about 10 years, surgeons have been doing it. So both the technology from the implants side has gotten a lot better, Mm. um, but also the surgeon's knowledge and um, capabilities has increased quite a bit over time too because of the, the amount that they're doing. You know, we actually just negotiated our first robot in one of our community hospitals. Okay. Um, That must be interesting. Yeah. So they're doing robotic um, knee and hip surgery now. So it it helps just um, get the incisions correctly and the placement like really consistent. All right. Yeah. Um, Well, tell me about how you define health equity. I mean, there's a conversation in our country which straddles issues of racial disparities in health, social determinants of health, And obviously we're talking about rural context. And even in some cases, we have lots of rural black and brown population, particularly in the South. But how do you as as the COO of Rural Partners in Medicine think about health equity and this conversation that we're having in our country? Yeah. Well, you know, I have a finance background, so of course I kind of get to the equity part of it and I want to value it. Like I want to put a number, I want to be able to measure it. And, and so finding some way that we could actually do that, I think would be an interesting conversation and and topic we should look at. But I, I think about health equity in a couple of different ways. Obviously there's patient health, community health. So the actual physical health that you've got going on and how that, how you have disparity between urban and rural or, or gender or all of that, those components of equity that come into and disequity. And, and then we've got quality of education and staff, staff and administrators, and making sure that that's on par between rural and urban, especially as we look at surgery, it's, it's pretty difficult because not that staff aren't excited about doing surgery and that kind of stuff. They just have had limited exposure to it a lot of times. So, you know, now you're talking about bringing surgery in. So a lot of what we support around once we start programs is, is actually elevating um, the experience of the staff and providing training and support around that. Obviously quality of the providers that we've got, you know, as you look at rural and urban, it's, it's just more and more difficult to get the same quality of surgeons in both environments and, you know, again, we think our model is pretty unique because we can take some pretty good surgeons that are busy at home and take them out to rural hospitals. And we, you know, again, the travel component is a piece of that, but it's also, it's also just how we design the programs and how we, how we deliver that model. And then, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this earlier to me, like the financial impact of that health organization on its community is is a component of health equity as well. So what kind of impact do they have and are they reaching beyond the four walls of the hospital to have a bigger community impact than just the health of its patients? Mm-hmm. So so I hear you saying, I mean, in many ways, and I think this is um, it's interesting and important, but it's when you think about health equity through the lens of urban-rural divide, what's inferred and in how you're thinking about it is that naturally if you live in an urban area, you're just going to have more access to quality healthcare by virtue of where you live. So in these rural areas, 
um, there is less access. So naturally, by bringing quality specialty care, you're able to support more equitable access um, in those communities. So, and then you have that spillover effect of economic well-being in rural. And it sounds like, I mean, at least in the communities we're talking about now, we're not necessarily talking about racial disparities because these are primarily homogeneous in the sense of race. But there's really this economic and urban disparity. And I mean, I think what's going on in our country that I think is challenging is the equity conversation becomes an either or. Either we're talking about rural or talking about urban. I mean, frankly, what we also know is in urban America, you know, if you're black or brown, you have a really tough time getting quality care. And in some cases, people are dying unnecessarily. And we're not saying right now that by, by talking about this urban-rural divide that we're negating that. Like, you know, there's a, there's a way to accept both things not being what they should be. And I think our discourse often doesn't do that, which is why I was very keen to have you on and to have this conversation as a rural health leader. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think obviously my lens is probably a little bit different than looking at the broader picture. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you, you know, wholeheartedly that, you know, the disparity exists in, in many different ways in the country. We just are so focused on trying to solve the problems that we have the capabilities to solve. And so that's where a lot of our energy goes. Right, right. Into rule and, and into these contexts. That, that's very good. Um, so I asked all my guests this as a part of the conversation. Why are you in on health equity? It's been really great to hear a bit about your story. We hear about your background from kind of student athlete, healthcare finance, and now doing this really impactful work in rural America. Um, why are you in on health equity? So, you know, for me, I've poured a lot of my energy and a lot of my adult life into work which has, you know, left probably gaps in my soul a little bit as far as the desire to have impacts in my community or a community. I don't even know that I could have articulated this a couple of years ago, honestly, before I even got into rural medicine. Okay. But, but as I've gotten into this company and seen what it's like to have such a mission-driven for-profit company to work for right. and work with and the communities to work with and the impacts that we're having. I think that's why I get really you know, passionate about what we're doing because I just it goes beyond just building companies. I mean, this is a very mission-driven company and, and it just, I, it's uh, kind of you know, tugged at my heartstrings a little bit and gotten me thinking about the world a little bit differently. Well, that's amazing. I'm really happy to have you on today. And I think it's particularly fascinating to hear about how you're building a model for rural America that not only brings quality care to these contexts, but also is sustainable. Because I know in my own background and doing this work, even in you know global health contexts in African countries and other places, that is really hard to do. It's very challenging to combine quality access and sustainability in rural contexts. So I think it's uh, really impressive. And I think the more you grow, the more you're going to have an impact on these communities. And uh, um, I'm just uh, wishing you guys all the best on that journey. Um, so I'd really like to thank Chris Pusey for joining us today, the COO of Rural Partners in Medicine, for really sharing this innovative model for rural healthcare um, that they've developed. Thanks so much for having me, KP. Great. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com podcast. 
You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Inon Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.